This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. Hello, this is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts. And this is where we gather together electronically to listen in on conversations that I like to have with thinkers and leaders uh, that I admire and that we can learn from. And uh, as we're doing this today, I want to remind you about the brand new podcast that uh, the Russell Moore podcast that includes Bible teaching, questions and answers, and the cross in the jukebox, where we look at uh, music through the prism of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you can check that out wherever you listen to podcasts. But here on Signposts, this is the place where in conversation, we look for those pointers of God's grace, what Walker Percy called signposts in a strange land and see where God is at work. And I'm really excited about this conversation today because my guest is Professor Mark Knoll, who is the Francis McEnany Professor Emeritus of History at the University of Notre Dame. He lives in Wheaton, Illinois. And uh, any of you who are familiar with uh, the discipline of history at all uh, will be very familiar with the work of uh, Mark Knoll. Uh, He's the author of too many books uh, to even recount. I have just uh, sitting here on my desk right now, uh, America's God from Jonathan Edwards to Abraham Lincoln, uh, Turning Points, Decisive Moments in the History of Christianity, and a book that was a monumental influence on my life and thought, and was one of those books that I had to read uh, really slowly because I kept going back and rereading sections over and over again. And that's The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, which was the Christianity Today 1995 book of the year. Professor Noll has a, a relatively new book uh, that he's edited along with two other uh, historical rock stars in the uh, in the American historical world and British historical world, for that matter, David Bebbington and George Marsden, called Evangelicals Who They Have Been, Are Now, and Could Be, which is a really important topic uh, that uh, I find myself asking often, and people are asking me often whether they're believers or unbelievers. Professor Noel, welcome to Signpost. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you. It's really my treat to be with you. This uh, new book that you wrote, which is in, or or that you edited in in continuity with uh, other things that you've been writing for many years about what it means to be an evangelical. I, I have to admit that I'm a conflicted evangelical when it comes to the word. Uh, (laughs) I I found myself writing a piece a few years ago about why I hate the word evangelical now uh, because of the way that it's it's used when it's it, it can be applied to everything from prosperity gospel televangelist to political activist to, to everything else. But on the other hand, Christianity Today and all of the various evangelical parachurch ministries were a lifeline to me uh, and have been uh, over the years. So I don't want to give that word up. And so I wonder if if you 
sense that sort of conflicted uh, nature of, of whether to be called evangelical or not? Well, you've certainly put your finger on a, a contemporary issue of, of uh, great interest, but then also, as you indicated to historians, it's really an interesting issue. The book you referenced came out of uh, conversations between uh, George Marsden, David Bebbington, and myself. And, and we were, of course, concerned about the history of writing about evangelical Christians, but also aware of, as historians sometimes are, of what's happening right around us, a great deal of controversy related to the political understanding of the word evangelical. And it was trying to bring together those two things, which the book attempted, but bringing together those two things speaks exactly to the kind of confusion that you referenced in being influenced by evangelical, self-described evangelical groups, and yet having a great deal of uncertainty, a great deal of controversy in the present world. My own sense, and we tried to communicate this in the book, is that conceptually and historically considered, there really is not a whole lot of of uh, controversy. Evangelicalism or evangelical emphases are those that uh, emphasize the Bible as the final authority, uh, new life in, in Christ, the work of Christ on the cross is a key matter for uh, salvation, uh, very often a conversion experience, and then the kind of activity that evangelicals are renowned for in mission work and evangelization. But the contemporary politics and the identity politics that's associated with evangelicals as a, as a strong component of the Republican Party and supposedly 81% of white evangelicals, however defined, voted for Donald Trump in, in 2016, that's a different sort of issue. So we have what might be considered a historical question and a contemporary question. How do those two come together? That's what we try to do in the book. I don't know if you try to do more than one thing in a book, sometimes you don't get anything done, but hopefully we've been able to clarify some history and then say a few things about the present as well. Well, one of the things that was interesting to me is when you're looking theologically in this book, I, I can't remember if this was in one of your essays or someone else's, but talking about how it can be murky, uh, this definition, uh, and the example was used of uh, the NAE uh, statement of faith on uh, exclusivity of Christ and salvation up against maybe some of Billy Graham's uh, comments uh, earlier in his ministry. And so it, it can be, uh, th- there can be some sort of uh, borderlands uh, here in terms of definition, can't there? Well, certainly that's the case. And, and the specific incident you're referring to is uh, the effort by the National Association of Evangelicals to come up with questions that can be used for responsible surveys. And one of the questions coming out of evangelical history is, uh, salvation comes through Christ alone, true or false? Well, the evangelical answer is obviously true. But once or twice in Billy Graham's career, people ask him, well, is it necessary to believe in Christ to be redeemed? He, of course, would say, well, all who are redeemed are redeemed by Christ, but is it necessary to be self-conscious about this? And Billy Graham said, I'm, I'm agnostic. So you could say that in some ways, Billy Graham, the best-known figure in American evangelical history of the 20th century, was at least on some details of traditional evangelical Christianity a little bit ambiguous. And that is the kind of situation that just doesn't compute. Isn't it true, though, when you, when you talk about this issue of trying to find questions to ask in surveys, that that's part of the problem here? I mean, for instance, uh, as somebody who lives in the, the so-called Bible Belt, 
Uh, I know very, very few people who actually would refer to themselves or, or think of themselves as evangelicals. They would, they would just think of themselves as Christians or Methodists or Baptists or, or whatever they are. And yet it's a culture where even now, if someone calls in a survey and says, have you been born again? Well, the answer is going to be yes, because of uh, everybody's been to vacation Bible school and everybody uh, made a profession of faith at some point or other. So how, how could you actually discern what evangelicalism is and is not in terms of what people actually hold in practice? That is an awfully good question. And to my, to my thinking, there just is no simple answer. To the mm. question, what is an evangelical or are you an evangelical? The, the proper response always should be, how are you defining evangelical? And, and uh, depending on how evangelical is defined, then things can go in different directions. If you ask about the, the main characteristic, can, even going beyond being born again, to trust in the Bible, to, to uh, believing that the, the death of Christ on the cross is a, is a key to Christian salvation, being active in uh, Christian life, being interested in evangelization. A really good survey taken toward the end of the 1990s asked 3,000 Canadians 3,000 Americans, questions like this. And in Canada, something like half of the people who showed up as the evangelical answers were Roman Catholic. Well, that's in the in modern situation, that's not too surprising. But historically, the word evangelical was used to mean non-Catholic and even sometimes vigorously anti-Catholic. So you, you have a, a, a really uh, a difficult situation if you're asking about beliefs and then you put them into categories. Your uh, reference to people who might have evangelical characteristics but would never think of calling themselves evangelicals reminds me of a situation. I was a visiting professor at Juniata College in, in Pennsylvania for a year in the uh, early 1980s. I had a, a really earnest young man who was a student who in a class and came to me explaining his love for Christ, his devotion to the scriptures, and I, I asked him, now, would you consider yourself an evangelical Christian? He said, oh, no, no, I just believe the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that was, that was the kind of confusion that, that uh, develops when different aspects of life and different perspectives on a common question are brought together. I don't think the confusion will ever cease until people are really clear what they mean when, when they use the word evangelical. You mentioned uh, Catholicism, and of course, you have uh, taught extensively in majority Roman Catholic uh, contexts. One of the things that uh, tends to disturb uh, some younger evangelicals, uh, one of them was just asking me this question uh, just a few weeks ago, is the uh, the, the famous uh, John Henry Newman quote, to be deep in history is to cease to be Protestant. And uh, some evangelicals that I know who aren't swimming the Tiber uh, to Rome but who are deeply conflicted and afraid if they start uh, tracing their way back uh, in history, that they would, in fact, uh, cease to be evangelical and cease to be Protestant. Uh, you're, you're one of the uh, most world-renowned historians of any kind uh, alive and also uh, an evangelical Christian. What would you say to someone who's disturbed about those questions? I didn't realize that when I went to Notre Dame that Part of my job description would be to talk to people of exactly the sort you've just described, that is, people who grew up basically in evangelical or sometimes fundamentalist households who were uh, strongly attracted to Roman Catholicism because the Catholic Church has a sense of history, 
Catholic Church has a strong commitment to liturgy, a strong commitment to ascetics, and these were things that, that were drawing some of these students in the direction of conversion. Some of them went on to become Catholic, some of them didn't. The message that I tried to communicate was just to be clear about what history gives you. Uh, in my view, uh, the Catholic Church is actually very strong uh, historically in areas where evangelical Protestants are weak. But a historical perspective can also show that there are areas in Catholic life and faith that are not as strong as areas of Christian life amongst evangelicals. So modern-day Catholics, I had many people at Notre Dame tell me, we Catholics need to learn from you evangelicals. Usually they said Protestants because it wasn't quite always clear in Catholic minds difference amongst Protestants. But what they were saying is you evangelicals nurture a personal relationship with Christ, leading to personal activity in the service of Christ. That is something that we as Catholics need to do much better at. And I think that was a, that was a judicious, that was a, that was a true statement. It's also the case that historically considered, um, the, the evangelical tradition, Protestant traditions more generally, have wonderful examples of serious intellectual life, serious engagement with history, serious liturgy, serious concern for aesthetics. Uh, I suppose you could say the, the quick answer for someone who says, I must become a Catholic or have some beauty, is say, well, you need to think about J.S. Bach. You need to think about Rembrandt. It wasn't actually a practicing Christian, but it came out of the Dutch Protestant world. And that Dutch Protestant world was a really tremendous impact on his paintings. So the statement that you made, to be interested, to be deep into history, is to move toward Catholicism, is certainly true in some cases. But my sense is that a fuller grasp of historical reality still leaves open the questions. And the grasp may be greener on the other side of the fence for some particulars, but the grass may be green on your side of the fence that you just haven't noticed. Mm, yes, it, it does seem that uh, some of the people that I have known who, are, who were Catholics and who became evangelicals expected that everybody in their new church uh, communion would be pious and, and filled with the Spirit and, and deep in the Bible and were disappointed. And some people that I've known who have become Catholics thinking that uh, I'm going to walk into a church uh, full of Walker Percy's and Flannery O'Connor's and, and, uh, and so forth have found also that they're in a situation where they deal with sinners and, and uh, with all sorts of the, some of the same problems they had before. Uh, so sometimes I think our uh, idealizations uh, don't tend to, <laughs> don't tend to well, turn, that's, turn that's out exactly right. right. I, I think there's just a, a normal human tendency to sometimes compare the best in another tradition with the worst in one's own tradition. That, that's, that's not a clear way of making progress on these kind of questions. Now, you talk about a little bit uh, in one of your essays uh, in this book, The Evangelicals, about the World Cup and the World Series. And uh, I, I chuckled when I read <laughs> when I read your comment about Americans saying, well, why would you call it the World Cup if we're not involved? Uh, and others asking, well, why would you call it the World Series if only Americans are involved? Uh, w with global uh, evangelicalism, what do you see happening around the world? And, and do you see more of a connectedness with American evangelicalism or with the way that the world seems to be splintering up into, uh, into various nationalisms and, and so forth? Is it going the other way? Right. I mean, probably a much more important issue 
for the uh, worldwide situation and for the general history of Christianity than whatever is happening with the word evangelical and evangelical situation in the United States. We were really pleased to have uh, contributors to, to the book that included Brian Stiller, who is a uh, Pentecostal minister from Canada, but who is the uh, one of the general secretaries of the World Evangelical Fellowship, writing on the, the, the uh, viability of the term evangelical around the world. Now, Stiller is aware that evangelical movements, evangelical type movements around the world are often not closely connected to each other, but he was really quite uh, optimistic about the continuation and the expansion of evangelical type Christianity in, in new places, China, Africa, uh, many places of, of Latin America. The question from a historical point of view is not whether there are a burgeoning of evangelical type groups around the world, many of them having very little to do with the United States, but it is the question whether these evangelical type movements around the world continue on with the main evangelical influences coming from the Reformation and revived in, in the 18th century revivals. A particular uh, question that is paramount is probably the issue, and you referred to it a little bit earlier, uh, whether the kind of prosperity gospels that are uh, not unknown in the United States, but proliferate around the world, whether they stand closely related or not so closely related to the historic Protestant, indeed Christian emphasis upon the atonement, the death of Christ, the suffering of Christ, the cross of Christ as the way to uh, God and the pathway to uh, satisfying Christian life. Certainly, there's a continuity between uh, the understanding of the gospel in many parts of the world and the missionary emphasis, for example. But some of the some of them are kind of wild and woolly, and uh, whether or not they they will be uh, over time drawn back more toward classical Christianity or not, I think is an open question. But what is clear, however, and uh, Brian Stiller and others who are uh, conversant of the church around the world know. Is that the, the American issues are important for the world, but they're not the world. And to, and to think that what United States Christians of any sort are worried about in our situation dominates the world is, is just a simple mistake. The things that are happening around the world are, are very divergent. There's many different things. As from evangelical point of view, some of them are very positive. From an evangelical point of view, some of them are not so positive. But many of them have very little to do with the, the things that were so knotted up about in the United States. Hmm. You know, one of the most moving experiences that I've had over the last uh, year or so was uh, being in London and speaking to a group of evangelical Christians there. And I, I just spent a few uh, minutes talking about how indebted my life is to British uh, Christians, uh, such as C.S. Lewis and John Stott, J.I. Packer, people along those lines. And uh, I'd been thinking about that the entire time there. And someone stood up at the end and said, uh, everyone in this auditorium, if you became a Christian or you became a Christian through the witness of someone who became a Christian at a Billy Graham crusade, would you please stand up? And it was almost the entire, uh, the entire auditorium. And uh, it was just one of those moments where you just realize how the rippling of of uh, ministries can just go around the world without ever, without the people involved necessarily even being able to see them. Well, that's that is certainly a valid reflection on many many experiences. I'm privileged to be a friend of Grant Wacker, who's written a couple of really nice books on Billy Graham over the last last several years, 
And his books have concentrated on Graham's work in the United States and, and uh, questions that have risen about his ministry. Uh, Grant is actually very, very positive about Billy Graham. But he has said that the, the real impact of Billy Graham is almost certainly in the future going to be his work around the world. The Graham Organization, for example, was the major sponsor of the Lausanne Conference in 1974, and then of, of conferences in the Netherlands, drawing together evangelists from around mostly the, the, the non-Western world, the third world, the Southern Hemisphere. And Grant's uh, conclusions, I think, uh, just cannot be questioned. Graham certainly was a major figure in the United States, but the way in which he promoted a Christian message and was without, wasn't, wasn't too particular about who picked it up and what they were called, but, but the promotion of that Christian message around the world, so many different places in so many different ways, would be his longest lasting legacy. Would you agree with the people who would say, there, there are several people who have said in, in recent years that the idea of a, a new great awakening, uh, similar to the, the revivals that happened uh, with uh, Billy Graham and, and others after the war, that that's dependent upon a particular time in history, and specifically in American history of post-war prosperity, uh, that's not likely to happen again. Would you yes. agree with that? Uh, yes. Historically considered, definitely. Um, the post-war era, when the National Association of Evangelicals got off the ground, when Billy Graham became an important figure, when um, groups that were separated in the United States, the Southern Baptists, the Missouri Synod Lutherans, the Pentecostals, really were in just very separate categories, very separate silos began to have mutually beneficial contacts with each other. That was an unusual uh, circumstance. The things that have happened politically in, in the United States since then have, have uh, led to seriously divided uh, subgroups. So it's very hard to imagine that um, there could be a kind of broad culture-wide revival of the sort that we've seen after the war and then in earlier periods, 1850s, 1740s. Nonetheless, as a Christian person and a historian who's a, who's a Christian, I've got to look back and say, well, you know, some of the wonderful things that, that happened in Christian history were completely unexpected. Some of the wonderful things that happened in Christian history, nobody could have predicted. Uh, experts at the time were, were uh, flabbergasted about them. So I, I think it's always important for believers to do their homework, to make the calculations that they think are best and most important but to realize that, that we are not in charge and that the Lord's sovereignty over the universe means that his timing will determine major developments like major revivals. And at the same time, as we're looking at this time of pandemic and potential global economic depression, there are some people, I think, who are counting on this time of, of difficulty bringing about that sort of, of uh, revival, but we can't count on that, can we? No, indeed not. And I think, uh, again, this would be a historical uh, perception that what has been the most effective God-honoring work from Christian believers of all sorts in the past has come from people not who are trying to calculate what their work will end up doing, but from people who are engaged in their work because they believe that's the call of the Lord to do the work for the honor of God and to leave to the Lord himself the outcome of their efforts. Well, I mentioned at the beginning that I was really influenced early on by your book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, 
and for multiple reasons, not just because of the argument there, but because it it seemed as though there was someone out there who was articulating a problem that that I could see, but I couldn't articulate. And I wonder, as you reflect on that now, I was thinking about the book uh, this week when I was looking at uh, there were all of these conspiracy theories going uh, around uh, the social media about uh, the pandemic being engineered by Bill Gates or a group of billionaires, and it's all a hoax. And uh, I was sitting there looking at this saying, how could you believe this, this obviously conspiratorial nonsense uh, here? And I wonder if in 2020, are you more optimistic or pessimistic about the state of the evangelical mind? Well, the simple answer is both. So I, I guess that, that would be the historian answering. Uh, the, the, the situation to describe is, is new in the sense of new media. The internet, uh, social media give a, an opportunity for ideas and proposals to just spread like wildfire. Um, that's different than, than the past has been to some extent, but Evangelical Christianity, and in, in certainly in, in the English-speaking world and around the world more generally, has always been a movement with a very strong popular or populist edge. And that populism has been wonderful in bringing the gospel into ordinary people's lives in ordinary ways, but it also has some problems. And one of the problems is uh, the intellectual capacity to, to, to shoot before you've aimed and to uh, be carried away with, as, you, as your illustration, uh, sort of wild conspiracy theories. George Marsden makes a really nice point in, in the, the, the book we've been talking about on, on evangelicals that if, if you have a very large constituency and only a really a small percentage of people who are trying not to follow this wild and woolly conspiratorial thinking, it may not look like a whole lot is happening. But in fact, uh, George went on to argue that if, if you have 70 or 80 people who in some sense are evangelical Christians in the United States today, and 5% of them or 10% of them are relatively serious about what they're doing, relatively serious about trying to think things through, then you actually have a very significant number, even though the 90% get all the publicity, all of the attention, and, and all of the press. So I'm, I'm actually quite encouraged at, at the, uh, the, the, the Christian study centers that now exist on many secular universities at the strength of faculty in Christian colleges and universities and, and seminaries, in, in the really strong uh, record of publication and biblical studies and serious work on Christianity and science. I mean, all of these things exist now with a strength that did not exist 40 and 50 years ago. We also have a lot more nonsense in, in the ether, a lot more uh, viral postings that, that probably aren't worth a, a second's uh, attention. So are, is this the best of times or is it the worst of times? I and mean, again, I have to say it's probably both. What would you say to a young evangelical, and there, there are many of them, who are discouraged? And one of the reasons that they're discouraged is because they've been uh, disappointed in seeing scandals, people that they admire, whether on the local level or, or the national level, or people who aren't uh, – people they respected who aren't living consistent with their convictions – and so they're, they're wondering, is this all just a, a marketing scheme? And they're tempted to walk away. I hear from a lot of people like that. What word would you have for them as someone who has looked at uh, this over, over a long period of time? Well, that's a, that's a good 
intellectual question, it's a good existential question because those kinds of situations just are present all the time. And now, particularly given the, the widespread publicity. First, I think you'd have to say, good for people to have a moral conscience that recognizes when others fall short. The second thing, though, I think I'd say is that the the Christian faith has at its basis been a a faith about grace and redemption and never about perfection. The Christian faith has stressed that people are redeemed, not because they do the right thing, but because God does the right thing for them. So that we shouldn't really be too surprised in ourselves and others if there are sins, if there are mistakes, if there are blunders. But then the third thing to say is that the Christian faith, besides being a faith of salvation by grace, is also a faith in which people's lives have been shaped and can be shaped by the grace that brought them into fellowship with God. So that even while we shouldn't be surprised when leaders fall, when we ourselves disappoint ourselves by our sinful behavior, we should also be encouraged that the gospel message itself as a kind of propulsive force, urging people to live up to what now they have become, the children of God, so that the proper understanding of the goals of sanctification and the realities of redemption hopefully can stay together and be an encouragement for people not to act in imitation of the errors of other people, but act in imitation of, of those, and there's many of these, believers who are living lives of faithful godliness. Well, that's a good place to end on a note of good news. Uh, Mark Knoll, you are a hero uh, to me, and I'm so grateful and thankful for your work and your scholarship and your life. Uh, Thanks for being with us today on Signposts. Well, my privilege, and and, uh, it's been an encouragement to speak with you, and I've admired your work for a very long time as well. Thank you all for listening uh, today. We encourage you to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or Pocket Casts or wherever you listen, and to check out the new uh, podcast there as well. Leave a review. will help us to, to allow other people to find the show. And if you're listening on a smartphone, you can tap the cover art, and you'll find some show notes, some resources, where to get Professor Knowles' books and other things. This is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.